0: Good morning. morning. Thanks for being here today. Anyone else having trouble focusing or just me? No? Just me. All right, that's okay. Uh, Great to see you again. Thanks for being here with us. And uh, my name is Corey, and I'm the lead pastor here at GFC. And you're joining us in the midst of a conversation we're calling Overcoming Temptation. And we started that conversation last week. uh, So if you missed that, you're welcome to go back and watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, But we got here because we've been tracking through the book of Luke. And so we, we skipped the Christmas story, but we've been digging into some other scriptures there and kind of looking at how we see hope through the person of Jesus and how Luke helps us see that as he writes his gospel. And hope is the theme of the year for us, so hope has a name, and we believe that name is Jesus. And so we're looking at Luke and saying, what can he teach us about who Jesus was and why we can have hope in him? And and last week we got to a space, we got to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus goes through temptation. He he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He's fasting. He's seeking God. And Satan shows up and says, I'm going to take care of this problem I have named Jesus right from the start. And he dives in and tries to get Jesus even before he actually starts his three years of ministry— So that he can stop that from ever happening, and he can take over and not have to worry about Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And so we're going to track through a little bit more of that today, but I want to remind us where we were last week. And so last week, one of the things that we landed on was this idea that who you are versus who you want to be is a struggle for everyone. And so if you're listening to this and you aren't a follower of Jesus or you found us online and you're not a follower of Jesus and you tune in for this conversation, this is why I think this is relevant for everybody. Because we know and I know in my life there are things about me I wish were different. And there's things that we, I wish I could do better or I wish I was better at. And some of those things I can change. And the question, the tension we live in is whether or not we're willing to do the work to change those things. So we can say a lot of things about who we're going to be or who we want to be. And then the question is, are we actually going to do it? And the fact is that we all have that problem or we all have that process in our brain, whether we know Jesus or not. So we went around to everybody, right? We're not going to, but we share what, what's something you wish you could be better at. You wish you had done differently. You wish you were instead of where you are today. And if there wasn't such a thing as a sin problem, then we would always simply do what it's always best for us there wouldn't be this thing where we always struggle to do what's healthy. Even just setting aside whether you're, again, like whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether it's a spiritual thing, you could find yourself saying, I know I shouldn't eat that or that many of those, and yet we still are tempted to do that. Why? We know that's not good for us, and yet we still do it. And that's the thing, is this is actually a biblical topic. In Romans 7, verse 15, this is what Paul tells us. "'I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right.'" I want to not eat the third donut. I want to get up the next morning when I'm supposed to. I want to make sure I don't lose my temper. And then what happens? He says, but I don't do it. And Paul was one of the guys that was leading the church, right? He, he had this massive transformation in his life, and he committed to follow Jesus, and he still says, I don't do it. He says, instead, I do what I hate. That's not just a, a Christian problem. That's not just a follower of Jesus problem. That's a, just a worldwide problem. We just all understand that. And so what's, what's the reason for that? We're digging into that a little bit today, and ultimately where we landed, and we're going to flesh this out a little bit more this morning, is, is we decided this, that your identity will ultimately decide your response to temptation. What you believe to be true about you, what you believe to be true about God, what you believe to be true about who you are called to be, is going to impact how you respond to temptation. And so here's the question I want us to frame today's conversation around, okay? And this is the question. Who owns the rights to your identity? Or who owns the rights to my identity? If if overcoming temptation and living the way we're called to live is about an identity issue— Then who owns the rights to that, and how do we respond to those things? We're going to dive right back into Luke 4, um, off the top here. So you can go to Luke 4, uh, verse 5, and if you want, you can open your Bible. If you brought it, you can turn on your phone and go that way. If you'd like to go to our follow-along page, you can scan uh, this little QR code on the back of your Next Steps card in front of you, or go to our website. That will get you all the notes and all the verses. You can email them to yourself. You can ask a question, submit a prayer request, all that good stuff. But in Luke 4 verse 5, this is where it picks up after the first temptation we get to the second one. So then the devil took him up and revealed to him, revealed to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in one moment in time. Now let's like, that's only a few words, it's one verse. we can easily brush over that, but just think about that. right he takes him up and he gives him this vision of all the kingdoms of the world. Now we don't know for sure if this was all kingdoms just present at that moment, or if this was all kingdoms present, past, present, future. Like all of them, all in one spot. like And he just shows them all. Like what a what a magnificent sight to just see. To just look over that and just see every empire, every kingdom that would maybe ever exist. Or even at, just at that moment, just to oversee what was happening at that moment. It's a pretty breathtaking view. And it goes on in verses 6 and 7. He, Satan says to Jesus, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, and I will give it all to you if you worship me. He says, all, all these kingdoms you see, all these empires, they're yours for just one price, right? Just worship me. Now, is Satan telling the truth? it's kind of iffy. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. This is kind of what Satan does, right? He, he gives you like a half truth and a half lie. So so here's what's not true, right? God is in control of all these kingdoms. God is the one who owns them all. God is the one who puts leaders and uh, governments and uh, principalities in place, right? He, he does all of that work. However, does Satan have influence And has he infiltrated and move in the hearts of people to go in the direction he wants them to go? And does he move in governments to do that sometimes? And does he move politicians and things like to do the wrong thing at times? Yes, he does. Like he gets to influence in some of that. And we've seen empires and kingdoms go the wrong way based on lies, based on sin, and that happens. And so Jesus knows this, right? He understands that Satan can't just give him these kingdoms, But he does know, and Satan is right in saying, he does have influence and the ability to kind of have some power that God has given him freedom to work in amongst these things and to be an influence in those spaces. And we've seen that happen, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so Satan comes into those moments and he can move in those spaces. And so what he's really offering Jesus is he's saying, you can have all this power and influence right now. We'll do that. We'll do that together. We'll take, take it on. You just have to worship me. But in verse eight, Jesus responds, and he simply says this. Jesus replied, "The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him, and and, and serve him only." There's some other uh, translations would say. He says, "No, I I know that I'm. There's no worshiping anybody else. Like this, this this isn't even a contest. Why why would I worship you?" And again, on face value, you know, last week we talked about the first temptation that Jesus received, and it was, a, it was a physical need, right? Satan shows up after 40 days and says, Jesus, why don't you just make yourself a snack, right? Turn the rocks into bread. Let's just, why not? You're hungry. You've been out here for 40 days. Don't you think you've suffered enough? Like, let's just let's just have a snack. And Jesus says no. And then he says this. He goes, yeah, worship. And, and most of us would go, like Satan shows up and has a conversation with us and says, worship me. I think many people would just go, no, that's a terrible idea. Like at face value, we're not tempted to go worship Satan. But what's the temptation that actually is at the heart of what's going on. And in this second temptation, I actually think there's two pieces to it, okay? So we're dealing with the second temptation that comes this way, and I think there's two pieces. So I want to kind of flesh that out a little bit this morning. Here's, here's the first temptation that was there for Jesus. The temptation was to receive glory without sacrifice. To receive glory without sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? I want to fast forward in Luke about 20 chapters, okay? So we're going to go to Luke chapter 24, And this story, uh, some of us have heard it before, probably. This story is actually happening the day Jesus rose from the dead, and he's walking along the road with two guys who were his followers. They weren't any of the 12 disciples, but they had been around as Jesus was doing ministry, and they had followed him. And they're giving Jesus the account of what happened to them that day. Okay, so so these guys are telling Jesus about his resurrection to Jesus. Okay, it's kind of interesting because they don't realize it's him. And so in Luke 24, starting in verse 22, this is what it says. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. Verse 23. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus was alive. Verse 24. Some of our men, Peter and John, ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was was gone, just as the women had said. They said, that, this is amazing, right? Jesus, he died. We saw him. He was dead. He was gone. There was no hope. And then they go to the tomb this morning, and he's alive. And the women tell us that, and then we had the other guys, our other friends go, and they saw it. So this isn't just a, one person seeing this. And he says, there were angels telling them that he was alive, and they're, they're astounded by this. And then Jesus steps in, and he says this. It says, Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe All that the prophets wrote in Scripture. He says, you you should know this. Like, this should have been the expectation. You know what the Scriptures taught. You know what—I mean, Jesus told them this. So he says, why don't you believe it? He goes on in verses 26 and 27. says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses— And all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's the thing, right? Remember, when Jesus is tempted, he's tired, he's hungry, he's worn out, right? Do we make good decisions when we're in that space? No. Satan knows exactly when he's jumping on this. And he knows Jesus is already tired and hungry. And what is in front of Jesus is this fact that he's going to have to go through three years of grueling ministry, culminating with his death on a cross for people who are going to actually nail him to that cross. What Jesus is walking into is not a, a walk in the park, right? This is going to be the most difficult thing he ever has to go through. But Jesus knew this was true, right? Remember, this the first part of, of 26 there, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before Entering his glory See satan knew those prophets too He knew those verses And so he's coming to jesus going. Why don't we just skip the suffering part? Why don't we just get past that and you just worship me and i'll give you the glory you want I'll give you what you're working for. You don't have to go through three years of ministry You don't have to go through dying on cross like i'll just give you all these kingdoms right now Just worship me done. We're all good And jesus says no he says, uh, he knew, I have to suffer, I have to go through this, I have to walk this path, and then I will receive the glory that God has promised to me, not the glory that Satan is promising me. And So Jesus has a very hard decision to make. Maybe not at face value, maybe worshiping Satan doesn't feel like a hard decision, but, but not walking through one of the most difficult roads that anyone has ever walked through had to be at least a little bit enticing. To say, I'm just going to skip that part. And see, here's the thing that's true about sin. Sin is never the most difficult option. It's never the most difficult one, right? It's, it's not necessarily always the easiest. Like maybe you got to do some work to sin sometimes. But usually the, the more difficult thing is the thing we want to stay away from, right? We live in this in a culture of speed and easy, right? We want it fast. We want it easy. We want to just be able to, right? We can pull out our phone and I can order something. May even be here at my doorstep tomorrow, right? That's easy, that's what we want. But sin is never the most difficult option. We have to realize what sometimes when we're getting into is we're skipping over the part that's difficult because it's easy, and that can be a sinful thing. And for Jesus in this moment, he was looking at this and saying, it would be easier. It would be easier to not have to go through that. But he knew that wasn't the best option. And so for Jesus, this meant gaining power and status without the pain of the cross. Like again, think about what, what Satan's offering. He goes, y- you don't have to have these people that you love kill you. Like think about that. You you can just have these people love you from the beginning. You, you don't have to worry about dying for them. Just just come with me and just like like, let's just take care of this without you having to die and without having to maybe hold all that weight of sin on him as he died. Let's just have that from the beginning, and I have to worry about that tough road. And Jesus says, No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And here's the other thing that's true about sin and temptation overcoming temptation always means denying yourself. See, Jesus wanted that glory, right? God had promised it, He wanted it, but He knew the right way to get it, and He knew the wrong way to get it. And so overcoming temptation, when we look at this idea, we we always have to recognize that it's going to cost denying sometimes what we actually want or denying ourselves of our impulses or denying ourselves of the things we know are going to make us less healthy or draw us away from God and not draw us to God. And so Jesus sees this and and he has to think about what's the best option? Am I going to give in? Am I going to take the easiest road? Am I going to just skip over what I know God is calling me to? Or am I going to choose the more difficult option? Am I going to go the right way? Am I going to deny myself of this moment of just getting what I want and instead pursuing what God has called me to? And So here's the second part of the temptation. So the first part was just denying self and recognizing that the easy way is not always the best way. The second thing is this. The temptation was to worship cultural approval and status rather than God. To worship cultural approval and status rather than God. Listen, this one is so difficult for us. And here's why. Let me just explain to you, okay? We can literally measure people's approval and status of us. Because we can see who likes our post, and who comments on it, and who retweets it, and who all those things, right? And so when all of those things happen, like maybe you've heard this conversation before, but when those things happen, and people start to like our stuff, and we can literally measure it, we get a dopamine hit. It's kind of like a drug. And so when we receive that approval from other people so easily and quickly, we go after that over and over and over again. And for Jesus in this moment, it was just to have all of that influence and power of those kingdoms and empires to be given to him. But we can chase it very easily. It's like, it doesn't have to be power like kingdoms and empires. It's just, we can put stuff out there. And if people like it, then that feels good to us. And so we understand deeply what it means to have that cultural approval and status be a driving force in who we are. Or it can be a very big temptation to become part of who we are. And in John chapter 12, this, this is illustrated so well in just a little short story. So in John 12, we're going to start in verse 37, and we'll get to 43. It says this, starting in 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Like, stop. They saw the miracles. They saw what he had done, and yet they didn't believe it. This is exactly, he goes on, John goes on, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed your message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Going on in 39 and 40. But the people couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Verses 41 and 42, Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. Many people did believe him, however, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. And then 43 lands it perfectly, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Like, think about that verse, and we have to ask ourselves a question. Is that me? Do I love human praise more than the praise of God? And again, this is a self-denial thing, going back to the conversation we just had, because we can measure people's approval of us. We can measure it. We can know how many nice notes we got. We can measure, like, for even off of online stuff, like, we can measure the compliments, right? We can measure all of those things and go, these are the people that said something nice to me today. We can measure all those things. God doesn't sit in our living room and say, I approve of what you just did, right? It's so much harder to measure and understand. So we, we have to just allow, be faithful to God and allow him to take control of what's going to happen. And he blesses us and moves in our lives, and we can, we can look back and we can see those things. But it's not so instantaneous, So that's why it's such a, it's a difficult thing to say, I would go after human praise. I would want that to be the thing that's affirming to me. It's going to feel good. It's going to feel right. But look at the people in this passage. They saw the things that Jesus did, yet they didn't want to believe. And then there's that conversation about the hardening of hearts. And that doesn't mean ultimately that God just said, you're not allowed to understand. He was allowing them to. Because of their disbelief, he just let them not believe. It's kind of like, I'm I'm not going to chase you. I'm going to be here, but I'm I'm just going to let you kind of go. And God just lets them walk away, and he, he doesn't pursue that. He allows them to make that decision for themselves, and that decision caused them to not believe. And ultimately, this becomes difficult because this whole conversation is difficult, right? Because when you start talking about temptation and overcoming temptation, it means we actually have to look inside ourselves and see what the problems are. No one likes that, right? I had to go to the dentist this week. I hate the dentist. I don't like it. And my number one fear is always that they're going to find something they have to fix, right? You just don't know. It's like, I, I brush my teeth, but like, who knows, right? Sometimes it stuff just happens. Like, I hate that. So, like, it, it's so much, like, easier. Like, like if they had called me a half hour before my appointment went, we, are, we do not have power. Like, you just can't come in. I would have been like, great. Sounds awesome. Let's put this off six more months, right? Let's just forget it. Because you just don't know. Like you start poking around and like looking in and trying to figure out doctors same way, right? You're trying to figure stuff out. You're like, I don't know what we're gonna find, but this is not gonna be fun necessarily. Good news, no cavities. Okay, so we're good. It's all good. But like that's part of the problem. There's there's a tension there. There's a fear that happens. And the same thing is true with temptation. Or when we start to think about, okay, what's going on in my heart and mind? What what do I have to address? How am I not following Jesus? And you start poking around, and you're like, I'm not excited for what I'm gonna find. This could be bad. This could be something I have to figure out. And even when we see God move, or even with these people that we see the miraculous signs, the friction comes when that then has to impact who we are and how we live. And so here's what I think is true sometimes about temptation and sin. Our eyes are blind to what they don't want to see. Our eyes are blind to what they don't want to see. These people in this story, they should have seen the miracles and said, all in. This guy's different. I'm going to follow him. But that means I have to do the hard work. That means I have to change. That means my desires have to get put on the back burner. That means I'm not the one who owns my identity anymore. And when that happens, that's not fun. That evaluation is not a good time. And so we can become blind to what we don't want to see. And we can look into scripture and we can say, yeah, not me, not here, not there. Like, I'm just going to ignore it. I don't want to deal with it. But that's not how we overcome temptation. And that's not how we move forward in our relationship with Jesus. Here's what I, what I think is true. That when, when you worship the approval of man rather than the approval of God, you will never stop chasing the prize. Here's why. There's always someone who's better. There's always someone who does it more. There's always someone with the better house. There's always someone with the kids that behave better. There's always someone that has something that you don't have. And when we're trying to get the approval of people all the time, the line keeps moving. There's a new way, a new, right? It, it's just never going to satisfy. And yet, when we decide to follow Jesus, here's the difference, right? God always stays the same. He says, love God, love people. Put that together, live in that space, that's where you're supposed to be. That's the goal line. And if we live in that space and that's our desire, we're following the heart of God. You don't have to worry about who's got what and what this person said or what, like if God, we talked about this a little bit ago. Like when God says, I approve of you, when God says, you're my kid and I love you, that outweighs everybody else. So when we think about this, we can we can chase all we want if we want to try and get the approval of people, or we can just rest in who God is and what he says about us. And so I want to go back to that question that I asked you at the very beginning, right? Who owns the rights to your identity? I, I want to flesh this out because this is this is an important question. Right? We hear a lot of talk about identity. News, around the you know, water cooler at work, if they still have those at work, I don't know. Right? Those kinds of things gender identity, all that kind of stuff. We have those conversations. And, and how do we approach that? And what does that look like? And how do we define it? Who gets the right to say what? And I think there are three. Now, this is Corey. I didn't do a ton of research on this, but as I process this, I think there are three kind of categories you can fall into as to who you're going to allow to have the rights to your identity. So here's the first one. Who owns the rights to your identity? Is it you? Now, in some sense, yes. Right, You get to decide you woke up this morning, decide what you were going to wear. You you get to decide uh, who you're going to marry. You get to decide your major when you go to college. You get to decide what car you're going to buy. You get to de- like we get to decide a lot of stuff. You, we have autonomy in life to do things, but who gets to decide who you really are on the inside? And and in many ways, culture would say you. And and this is kind of where the where the road And I'm not saying this as like a judgment on culture. I'm just calling it as I see it. What happens now, the conversation that's had is if you define yourself as something and someone disagrees with you, that person hates you and is your enemy. So if they don't affirm what you decide about you, then they hate you and you are now enemies, right? Because they're not affirming you and therefore they shouldn't have a say in who you are. And so I get it, right? We do have autonomy. We do get to decide things for ourselves. But there's also an understanding of who you are is defined by who created you. What your purpose was. Who called you to do what? And what does that mean? And so I would, I would challenge the conversation of if it's, if it's just you, I would say we're leaving God out of the equation. And I would invite you into that conversation. And for some, like that, even saying that is like, Ew, like that, some, the wrong person hears that and goes, you're not an affirming person. And I would just go, I want to affirm God's love for you. That's what I want. And I want him to define you. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Here's the second one. Does someone else you want to please define you? This happens too, right? This can happen uh, when you're a kid. You want your parents' approval. Right? Or you want your older sibling's approval. Anyone ever, I'm the oldest, so I never had that kind of thought. But like I've seen that happen where you like the older sibling is the cool one, and you just want to be accepted by them, or you want your parents to be happy with you. And, and sometimes we see this play out in ways where people actually go into professions because they want their parents to be proud of them. Like they choose something, or, or they take over the family business even though they don't want to because they want their parents' approval. Of them, and so sometimes we hand that over. Sometimes this happens in dating relationships or even married relationships, where you make compromises with a boyfriend or girlfriend because you want them to love you, and so you make decisions you wouldn't normally make, or you allow your your spouse to treat you poorly because you just want them to stay with you, and you want that to be figured out. Like you, we do this sometimes where we hand somebody else the keys to who we will be and how we will respond because we want their approval. And again, right, wanting other people's approval, wanting your parents to be proud of you, is not wrong. But at some level, we can't just hand that over to somebody else and make poor decisions because we want someone else to be happy with us. So here's the third category, and here's the only one that makes any sense to me, right? Who owns the rights to your identity? Jesus, right? Super church answer, I know. But that's the answer. If Jesus is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life. And he made you. Why wouldn't we hand our identity over to him? Why wouldn't that be the place we go? There's a a comedy group. uh, They're called the Skit Guys. Many of you have probably seen stuff by them. They had a skit. I don't know if they still do it or not. They did it years and years ago when I was in youth group. And the end of of the skit was this phrase, God had an idea and it was you. And he thought it was a good idea. And what does that say? It says you have a purpose. You have a reason for existing. You don't just get to to take over that and go, this is who I'm going to be and I'm going to change it. It means that we lean into that identity and say, this is so worth it to look at Jesus and say, I will follow you. And you get to define who I am. And here's the thing, right? If we're going to overcome temptation, this is what this requires. It requires a complete overhaul of our identity. If we walked into this conversation, right, and you were looking for ways, you thought I was just going to come up here and be like, "This is how you stay away from temptation." Listen, we can we can say we're just going to stop doing bad stuff till we're blue in the face. Right? I'm just going to say no. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to give up this thing. I'm just going to stay away from that. Like we can say that all day. But until something changes inside of us, we're not going to win that fight. And, and we know, like if you've been a Christian for long enough, you know, like we're not perfect people anyway. We're, we're going to have times where the struggle happens and we give in and we do the thing we're not supposed to do. Or we're like Paul, like I had every intention of doing the right thing and I still did the wrong thing. But how do we respond to that? And there's a, I want to go one more passage today. I want to go to Ephesians chapter two. Again, Paul has this conversation and he talks about this overhaul in identity we need to have. Starting in verse one of Ephesians two, this is what it says. Once you were dead because of your obedience and your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse three, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Listen, no one gets an out in these verses. Like this is an all play. From the moment we're born, we are deserving of God's anger because we are sinful humans. We talked about this last week. We looked at Adam. Adam sinned, handed it down to the rest of us. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? This is just the way it is. So what does that mean? The new Adam, Jesus, had to come to offer new life. And and Paul lays this out. He goes, you you don't get out of this. Like, we all were this person. We all have this sin nature. We all have this problem. So what do we do about it? Verses 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. Like, that should be the verse that's on art around houses and stuff. That's the verse that should be there. Because it's so full. Like, those, those, those few words right there are, are some of the most powerful in Scripture. It says that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And then in parentheses, it is only by God's grace that you and I have been saved. So guess what? If you're dealing with a sin problem, like we walked into this conversation and we started having conversation about overcoming temptation and your mind immediately went to, that's my problem. Like that sin that you can't shake kind of come back into play and you don't know what to do with it. Like just repeat the first part of this verse to yourself. When you fail, just go, but God is so rich in mercy and he loves me so much. I don't take it for granted, right? Don't give that as license or take that as license to just continue to sin over and over and over again. But we can recognize when we screw up, guess what? God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that he was willing to die, not when we had done something right, but while we were still sinners. This is the overhaul and identity that has to happen. That, that when we recognize who God is, We say, I'm going to deny what I want. Just like Jesus said, I'm not just going to skip over the hard part. I'm not just going to say, I'm just going to give in to Satan because he's going to give me the easy route. Like, I'm going to deny myself in this. And then what I'm going to do is I'm also going to recognize that I don't need to live for the approval of other people. Like, that shouldn't be the motivator for me. What should be the motivator for me is simply the approval of the person who decided I was worth dying for. Who thought I was a good idea, and then when I turned away from him, he, saw, he thought it was still a good idea to die for me. That's the person who, whose approval I need. And that's the one I should be living for. And when that's the answer, it's, it's not just a do and don't list. Right? It's not just like, oh, I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't. No. It's like, how do I be Jesus in these moments? How do I show that I'm a child of God in these decisions I'm making? And what does that actually look like? And so here's, here's the challenge, okay? I want to flesh this out a little bit, and I'll explain it, okay? Because at first glance, this sentence, I probably didn't punctuate it right. I'll ask Shannon later. I probably just didn't, but we'll just go through it. And we'll figure it out, okay? So it says, this, this is my question to us. What do you need to give less power in order to give Jesus more power? Okay, what do you need to give less power in order to give Jesus more power? And here's what I mean by that sometimes when when pastors like me stand up and we preach about something like this the and we start to have this conversation where we go we need to do less over here so we can do more over here sometimes at least the way I heard it especially when I was growing up and stuff was stop doing other things and just read your bible and pray more and look more like Jesus that way okay those are good things but I think it's more nuanced than that okay let me let me explain here's here's what I mean by this We all have so much power we can give, and there's a limit, right? We all get 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's it. It's even playing field for everybody. We've got to decide what to do with it. And the question is, who are we going to honor with the time and energy and influence that we have? And so when we honor something or we give time and energy and influence to something, it can become a part of who we are because it can start to take over our a schedule it can take over our finances it can take over our friend groups it can take over all of those things and so when we do that the question is are we giving Jesus the right amount of time and energy and influence that we should be giving and it's not what i mean is not just prayer and bible reading and going to church and that, and that stuff like that's good but what i mean is are we following the calling that god has given us and being the person he has created us to be. Because when I'm, right, God has blessed me with a wife and children and being a pastor and all of this. So when I'm following Jesus in those spheres of life, I'm worshiping him. Like that's worship because he's given me these kids I'm supposed to raise. He's given me a wife. He's given me this pastor. Like that's what I'm supposed to do. And so when we look at it a little differently, it's not just about reading your Bible, going to church, that kind of thing. It's, it's about being the person that Jesus has created you to be in that space. Let me give you an, an example, okay? I'm going to pick on travel sports for a minute because I also am a part of travel sports, okay? So I'm not hating on anybody. I'm just saying, like, we got to think about it. If I decided to put all my time and energy and influence into my kids' travel sports, which is a temptation for me, okay? I love sports. I love coaching. I love being on a team. I love being in that space. Like, if you know me for five minutes, you know that's true, okay? Okay. So I love that. And so I could easily just put a ton of of, of energy and influence and resources into that. And it, it might be something different for you, right? It might be a different hobby, or maybe it's still your kids. just in a different way, or it's your marriage, or it's traveling, or it's whatever, right? There's things every one of us could do. And that's all fine and good. But the problem is when I give too much time and energy and influence to that, and my ministry that Jesus has given me— as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a neighbor, as a community member, when that starts to suffer, then I have a problem. Because my identity becomes too much existing in this sphere over here. And not so much in who Jesus has called me to be. And so we we have to kind of take this inventory and say, are there things that I'm allowing to take over as a part of my life that's causing me to make bad decisions with the ministry Jesus has called me to, because if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You have a ministry. It's not just like, oh, Pastor Corey has a ministry because he's a pastor, or Pastor Andrew does, or the elders do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a ministry to do. The people around you in your family, at your work, at your school, they're the mission field. They're the people we're supposed to be sharing Jesus with. And so when we allow something in our identity or something to become a part of our identity that draws us away from that and cancels that out, that's a problem. And it means we're giving more power to that instead of power that Jesus is asking us to use. Listen, this is the temptation Satan gave to Jesus. You give me more power and influence, you worship me. Satan says, "And I'll give you all this stuff. I'll give it to you." And Jesus said, "No. Like I, I'm not going to give to Satan. I'm not going to give to my desire. I'm not going to give to the approval of people. What God has required of me. I'm not going to allow that line to be crossed. Instead, I'm going to live for the person that I know I'm supposed to live for." It's a little more abstract. It's a little more challenging. But I want us to process this, right? you got to kind of mentally go to the dentist for a little bit and say, what's, what's in here? Am I allowing something else to get in the way? Am I allowing something to become part of my identity that I'm not supposed to or that's drawing me away from what I know I'm called to do because I want the approval of people or because it's an easier path? Is that what I'm doing in here? Or is my identity wrapped up in who Jesus says I am and who God has called me to be? Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we are grateful again that we have this account of your temptation to see you as a human who went through these kinds of things as well. And at a time where you were hungry and tired and frustrated and probably just done with a lot of stuff, you didn't give in and decide, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to give in. I'm just going to take the easy road and I'm going to take my own desires and say, this is better. But you decided to keep on that difficult road and you decided to give to God what belonged to God. And ultimately you ended up dying for us. God, I pray that you would make it clear to us if there are things that are sneaking into our identity or just taking over our lives too much and and taking away from the ministry we're called to do I pray that you would help us to see those things that we would address them and we would give them to you and that we would find our identity in who you say we are not who we say we are necessarily not who other people say we are but that we would recognize that you have a say in who we are and that would be the most valuable say that we could have in Jesus name Amen.